0: scripture and prayer this morning. Good morning. morning, morning. All right, everyone go ahead and stand. Read God's word. Don't need to turn with us anywhere. I'm just going to read to you. It's Paul, of course, writing to the church at Ephesus and uh, to fellow Christians. And in this section, is concerning um, Christian living. And notice how many times here we hear the word therefore come up as Paul makes the argument for proper Christian living. And I'm going to read about midway through chapter 4 to midway through chapter 5. And it starts with a therefore, having said all the previous points of doctrine in the first three chapters. This I say therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you, you did not learn Christ this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, that you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside all falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him labor, "...performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he might have something to share with him who has need. And let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So let all bitterness, and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice." And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children, walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But do not let immorality, or impurity, or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness, and silly talk, or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral, or impure person, or covetous man who is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with these empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, Do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. So walk as children of light, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ.
1: to
2: Continuing in the book of Mark this morning, so you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Last week we looked at Jesus on the cross. The week before, we took the time to look at what Jesus actually accomplished on the cross. We looked at the physical events out of Matthew and Mark and Luke and some of what John had to say about it, and... Jesus had only died on the cross. It doesn't matter what he intended to do. If he had only died on the cross and then stayed dead, then we're still, according to Paul's theology that we're about to read, we're still in our sins. And so we have to conclude that the resurrection itself is the evidence that God accepted the sacrifice of Christ. He sacrificed himself, he accomplished his own death, but the resurrection is the validation of all that sacrificial work. It's the demonstration in time and history that God approved what Jesus did. And that's why all of the stuff that we say about how Christ was the final sacrifice for sin, that's how we know that that's factual, that that actually occurred, that he is the final sacrifice for sin because he's the only sacrifice for sin that ever got up again. If you killed a lamb or an ox or slit the throat of an animal or broke a bird or anything and then it suddenly sprang to life again, you'd be surprised. Well, that's exactly what happened with Jesus. His final propitiatory sacrifice was so accepted by God that God raised him from the dead again. He not only accomplished his death, but he accomplished the raising of his body again. And he said all of that was what he had a command from his father to do, to accomplish. We have confidence today. We have hope today. Because of the resurrection. Amen. Now, the gospel writers write about the resurrection as though it is an actual, literal, genuine, historic fact. And I'm here to say it is. That's absolutely true. Through the years, you've heard. Myself and Tom go through the evidences of the resurrection, the historic evidences that the resurrection is true and actually happened. But in the end, ultimately, the resurrection is proven to be true by the fact that Christianity works. Now, what I mean by that is everything Jeff just read. Jeff just read out of the book of Ephesians that we, as Christians, experience a change. Something happens to us internally. We're not the same people we used to be because we are inhabited by the Holy Spirit of God. And that spirit being holy brings holiness and thoughts of holiness and holy behavior and living into our lives And we become something that we never could have become on our own because we're simply not smart enough or moral enough or strong enough to ever reach the point where we could actually be what's considered good. But by the very spirit of God and by that internal change, we see evidence that Christ has been raised in our heart, that the Holy Spirit has taken up habitation and brought the truth of Christ to us. Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life is then birthed inside us in such a way that the Bible could speak of a new birth, that we ourselves are made into new men and women, that we have a changed and enlightened, regenerated mind. All of these things take place because the resurrection happened. Now, you can go back and you can look at history and you can look at the arguments and you can look at the details and the facts, and you can come to the conclusion that Christ had to have come out of the grave. When you actually look at the details, there's no other explanation historically that satisfies all the facts and details of history except that he came out of the grave. And as we continue into Mark today, we're going to see one of the strongest evidences Of the resurrection. One of the strongest evidences of the truth, the veracity of the historic resurrection is the fact that the tomb is empty. And the tomb is still empty to this day. And the tomb was empty from three days after his death all the way through. And the strength, the power of the empty tomb has been attacked. For 2,000 years. Because if the tomb isn't empty, if you can prove logically that the tomb either wasn't empty or that there's some logical explanation for the empty tomb, then you can undermine Christianity completely. But if the tomb is actually empty because the person who was in it got up and left, well, then you've got a whole other story here. You've got genuine Christianity. You've got everything that the prophets predicted. You've got exactly what the Bible says, that Christ had the authority, had the power to lay down his life and to take it up again, and that he actually did take it up again, so much so that he was able to get up from his own grave, walk and talk and do the things that we read about in the Bible. So this empty tomb story is vitally important To who we are today, and what we're like today, and what we believe today, why we gather on Sunday mornings, or some of us on Wednesday nights, why we sing to him, why we pray to him, why we have confidence that when we leave this world, we're going to be okay with God eternally. All of that is rooted and grounded in the resurrection of Christ, so much so that we're about to read Paul saying, If the resurrection isn't true, then the whole rest of it is vain. The whole rest of it is made up. And we have no hope for eternity because we're still in our sin. Even though Christ died ostensibly for our sin, biblically, theologically for our sin, it was the raising of Christ that proved that God actually accepted that sacrifice, and now we are accepted in the beloved. But without the resurrection, you're still in your sin, which leaves you, Pauline language again, of all men most miserable. Why would you be most miserable? Because Paul says all you have in terms of hope is this life. That's all you get is what's here and now. And I'm here to tell you, and I'm betting that I can get a few people in the room to testify with me, life here and now goes by way too quick. Amen. I mean, you wake up one day, and suddenly you're as old as I am. I have a friend whose birthday was two days ago. And I wrote to him, and I said, you're about as old as your mother now, aren't you? Because it, it just it goes by like that, and suddenly you're an old guy like me. You wake up one day, you look in the mirror, and you don't recognize the old man staring back at you. And you think, wait a minute, I had stuff I wanted to do. And suddenly life just flashed by. Well, if life goes by in a flash, and this is all you got, what kind of hope do you have? Of all men, we're most miserable because we have hope in this life only. And then when we die... We're still in our sin. So then God's going to judge us and we're going to be condemned and we're going to spend the rest of eternity in outer darkness. So whatever you got going for yourself right here and now, live it up. Enjoy it because this is as good as it gets. Or Christ got out of the tomb. If Christ got out of the tomb, he's in us, we're in him, then we have an eternity to look forward to that is full of hope and joy and infinitely better than life here and now. So we're willing to trade in the here and now for the best life to come. Joel Osteen is wrong on that one. Good, I'm glad two people got that. Chapter 15 is sort of Paul's great treatise on the resurrection and it begins with something I read for you just a few weeks ago where I said this is one of the earliest creeds of the Christian church it's one of the declarations of what Christians believe and what the essence of the gospel is and it's going to end with him talking about the order of the resurrection that Christ was raised from the dead he's the first fruits of those who sleep And then, since by man, since Adam came death, then by man, Christ comes the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam, like all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But before he gets to that, he has to talk about the necessity, the importance, the theological reality of the resurrection itself itself. And he argues that the resurrection is an actual, physical, real thing. And this is really important to hold on to because in the early church, and even up till today, there's a great deal of what's known as Gnosticism. Are you familiar with Gnosticism? Gnosticism believes at its root, at its core, that everything that's fleshly is bad. And therefore, Christ could never have actually been fleshly. He had to have been spirit and spirit only, demonstrating himself or showing himself as if he was a man, but he couldn't take on flesh and blood because flesh and blood is essentially evil. And so they say then that the death that he ostensibly died was not a real, physical, actual death. That a man who claims to be a man but is only a spirit can't actually die because only physical flesh can die. Therefore, Christ didn't actually die. He only appeared to have died, and that's why he resurrected again. He never succumbed to actual death. Well, that sort of Gnosticism still exists today. But Paul emphasizes, as do all four of the Gospels, that they walked with Jesus. They talked with Jesus. They saw him... Being hungry, they saw him being tired, they saw him being as human as humans get. And they saw the imprint of the nails in his hands and in his feet. They touched his body after the resurrection. They testified that he wasn't a spirit. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a phantasm. He was an actual physical living being who actually physically died and then actually physically raised again. And that's really important to know since Paul's theology is by man came death. That's by Adam and Adam's rebellion against God. That's why death came into the world and then death came on all men because we're all born after Adam's likeness. And so it's important then that by man also came resurrection from the dead. That has to be as physical and real a man as Adam was. And this is essential to what we believe as Christians. Look at verse 12. There are some that Paul is contending with who argue that there is no resurrection from the dead. We've read that the Sadducees didn't believe in stuff like that. And so his argument's going to be, well, we preach that Christ raised from the dead. But if Christ didn't raise from the dead because there is no resurrection, well, then Christ isn't raised. And what are the consequences? What are the theological fallout? What is the theological fallout of Christ not being raised? Well, that's what he's talking about here. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But... If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. That's axiomatic. If there is no resurrection, then Christ isn't raised. But we're out here saying he's been raised. So why do some of you say there is no resurrection when we are first-hand witnesses to the fact that resurrection actually did happen because Christ is raised? Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is vain and your faith also is vain. In other words, the very fact that I'm out here preaching that he actually resurrected, if he didn't resurrect, then this preaching I'm doing is an exercise in vanity, an exercise in emptiness. I'm just showing off, My learning, my ego, I'm trying to convince you of something so that I can gather more followers to myself. I'm out here preaching a resurrection that never actually occurred if, in fact, Jesus never got up from the dead. And worse, your faith in Jesus is completely vain. Your faith in Jesus is empty, foolish, because he didn't raise from the dead if there is no resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith also is vain. Verse 15, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. Not only is our preaching an exercise in vanity, but we're actually false witnesses of God. And what is the ninth commandment? Well, it's that you don't bear false witness against your neighbor. And here Paul is saying, if Jesus didn't get up from the grave, then I am a false witness, not just of my neighbor, but I am a false witness of God. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we are preaching we witnessed against God that he raised Christ. Part of the essential theology that Paul is preaching is that the reason Christ is raised from the dead is because God raised him from the dead. But if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then we're false witnesses lying on God because we're saying God did something that God didn't do. Mm -hmm. We are false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ. Whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. And you are still in your sins. One of the fascinating things about Paul's treatise here on resurrection is you'll notice that even though he's discussing, arguing, debating Christ's resurrection, you will notice that he assumes God all the way through it. He doesn't defend the notion of God. He doesn't actually defend the notion of Christ. He knows that they actually are and that they actually exist. You will notice that Paul does not say... Well, then we're false witnesses of God, but in order to show you how bad that might be, let me give you a defense of the existence of God. He doesn't go into any of that. He just assumes whether Christ is or isn't raised that God exists. And if Christ isn't raised, then you're still in your sin, and then you have to stand before God who does exist, and you're going to be judged for the very sin that Christ did not carry away from you if Christ isn't raised. So that's why I started this morning by saying it's one thing for Christ to have hung on the cross. It's one thing for us to have developed the theology of his sacrificial death and his taking away of sin. But if he is not raised according to Pauline thinking, then we have no guarantee, we have no hope, we have no surety that God accepted that sacrifice so that our sin is actually completely washed away here's Paul's conclusion if Christ has not been raised verse 17 your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished your loved ones the people you had all this hope and confidence in the ones who died believing in Christ I got bad news for you. They died believing in Christ, but Christ is no help to them, and they perished. They're being condemned by God. They're being sent into hell and outer darkness at this moment if Christ hasn't been raised. Do you see how important the resurrection is to our overall theology? If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, well, then we are of all men The NASB says of most men, we're to be pitied. The King James says of, we are of all men most miserable. Because if Christ is not raised, then we had hope in Christ in this life, but when we die and stand before the God that does exist, Christ is no help to us. And be honest with yourself if Christ is no help to you, what do you got? you got nothing to take before God. You're going to take your filthy rags and stand before God and say, here, I did this for you. That's not going to cut it. You need not only Christ, but the resurrection of Christ as a historical, real, honest to goodness, flesh and blood fact in order for you to be redeemed. Then he continues in verse 20, what I already said, but now... Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. What is the point of first fruits? You gave the first fruits to God expecting a good harvest. In other words, if Christ is the first fruits, who, by the way, raised up on the day of first fruits... If Christ is the first fruits, then that means there's going to be a harvest of people who are going to raise from the dead just like he did, who are going to resurrect and go off to heaven just like he did. And so if he did it, the guarantee is you're going to do it. Where do you get your confidence? Where do you get your hope? Where do you get your understanding that eternal life is just around the corner for you? You don't get it because of your goodness. You don't get it because of your righteousness or the works that you've done. You get it for the fact that Jesus raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of the resurrection, and that's why your faith and your confidence in him is actually going to pay off. It's not going to pay off because of anything you did or anything that can be found in you. You have hope of eternal resurrection, eternal life with God, and eternity before God accepted in the beloved. You have all of that because Christ raised from the dead. Am I overstating the case yet? No. No. Okay, good. That's what I wanted to hear. Yes, sir, Sandy. You're not, and I understand
3: totally, and I know that Christ had to be the first one to be resurrected and never to die again. But as you know, other people were raised from the dead. Yeah. And of course, they died again. But anyway.
2: And um, let me make one quick distinction since you said that. Okay. Other people were, and you used the right language, raised from the dead. How were they raised from the dead? By someone else. Christ is the only one who did it himself, who had the authority and the power to raise himself even though he was dead. That's a whole other ball of wax. Christ raised himself to be ever living and that makes it unique. Okay, now I'll say what you're saying.
3: There are also the scriptures that said the Holy Spirit raised him, and also when it says God raised him. So really the triumph unity was involved in it. Absolutely. What I'm getting to is um, concerning those that was raised from the dead, I don't see that as a as a resurrection in, in about the definition of resurrection, what I need mean is to never die again, as Christ did, because they died again. I'm kind of link these two to get a better understanding.
2: Oh. okay. The word resurrection is the Greek word anastasis, which means stand up again. And the resurrections, you're correct, that we see right up until the death and resurrection of Christ. Those resurrections, those people all die again. We have to assume that even though we don't read it in the Bible. But the resurrection, the anastasis, the standing up again that Christ promises is resurrection to eternal life, which is why Paul continues in verse 15 or in chapter 15 in order to say the body that we're raised with is not like the body that's planted. And he's going to draw an equation between planting a seed but then it grows up to be a tree or a flower or a bush or something. He said you didn't plant a tree, you planted a seed, but it comes up in another body. And that's what we're going to come up like. So he's talking about a different kind of eternal resurrection than the previous resurrections, which actually were life from the dead, but not permanent life from the dead because those people died again. But Paul is now saying through Christ who raised himself from the dead, there is an eternal resurrection available for those who believe. Also, when you get to the book of Revelation, Revelation 20, you read about the resurrection of the dead unbelieving who were resurrected to condemnation and judgment. So we're talking about very eternal subjects under the heading of this resurrection. So that the
3: part that's being resurrected Is it the body that we're
2: talking about and not the soul, or both? The soul doesn't need resurrection because the soul leaves the body and goes to be with Christ. That's what Paul says absent from the body, present with Christ. So the soul doesn't need resurrection because the soul doesn't die. Mm -hmm. The body dies, and then the body needs to be resurrected so that you are saved. Pauline language again body, soul, and spirit. So that the whole of who you are is resurrected and taken to the New Jerusalem. Did that answer the question? Yeah, it does. Thank you. Okay. All right, so with all of that as an introduction, let's now turn to the book of Mark. We are in Mark 16. Well, actually, we're at the end of Mark 15, starting about verse 42. So what is the point, what is the purpose, what is the main driving impetus of the book of Mark? Well, if you go back to Mark 1 for just a moment, hold your finger right there at the end of Mark. But if you go back to the beginning, the very first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the next phrase is the son of God. Mark takes the time right away to tell you what it is he's going to talk about. He's going to talk about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he spends the whole rest of his gospel proving that Jesus is the Son of God. And he proves it through all the various things that Jesus says, what he teaches, what he does, demonstrates that Jesus is the Son of God. It's a really interesting sort of bookend that when Jesus is on the cross, the Roman centurion has that conversion moment and says, surely this is the Son of God. And that's the first place in the book of Mark where you hear that from human lips. So it's like bookends. I'm talking about the Son of God. You get to the end of it. He is the Son of God. So he feels like he's proven his point. And then he's going to talk about the Son of God hanging on a cross, the Son of God being buried, and then the Son of God resurrecting again in power, proving that he is everything he ever said that he was. That's the point of Mark. And once Mark reaches that point where he feels like he's made that point, he just kind of up and quits. He puts his pen down and he's just sort of done. Let's start at Mark 42, Mark 15, 42. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up his courage, and he went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. When Mark wrote that, the people in that region would have inherently understood the days he was talking about. John takes the time to tell us, parenthetically, that the Sabbath that is referred to here was a high Sabbath. Now, hopefully, I can just walk through this almost like cliff notes, and you'll all remember. But the Old Testament tells us that there are four spring feasts. The first of those spring feasts is the Passover. The Passover always happens on the 14th of Nisan. Doesn't matter what day of the week that is. It's always the 14th of Nisan. The 15th of Nisan, the next day, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that lasts for a week. And the first day and the last day of that week are what are called high days. They're Sabbaths during which nobody can do any kind of servile work. All of the Sabbath rules apply on the 15th and at the end of the week. It doesn't matter again what day of the week that is. It just matters that it's the 15th on the calendar. And every year that would change the same way that our calendars every year, say your birthday, lands on a different day of the week, but it falls on the same calendar numerical day. Well, that was the case with Passover and unleavened bread. They fell on the 14th and the 15th. Now, we've said over and over again that on the Jewish lunar calendar, a day begins at about 6 o'clock in the evening. We still use that word evening because it is the even between light and dark. When there's an even amount of light and dark... That is the evening of that day. That's why we use that language. And then it becomes night. Once it is evening, by Jewish reckoning, that's the next day. So even though we say that a day begins at midnight, they say that a day starts around 6 o'clock. Therefore, the 15th of Nisan starts the evening of the 14th of Nisan. Everybody with me so far? Yes, sir. Does that mean that When the Bible here says Sabbath, it's not Friday at 6 till Saturday at 6. It could be Tuesday. Yes, that's the answer. That's exactly what I'm driving at. Yes, because tradition is that we read that and say, oh, it's the day before the Sabbath. Sabbath is always Saturday. That means Jesus died on a Friday. And that means he got up Sunday morning before sunup because the women came before the sun came up and they found the empty tomb and that somehow friday evening to sunday morning is three days and three nights which is exactly what jesus said he'd be just like jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days three nights so the son of man was going to be in the heart of the earth three days three nights and so it leads you to believe that jesus didn't understand calendars if he somehow went to the grave friday night and then was up before sunrise Sunday morning, how is that three days and three nights? And the argument is often, well, a portion of a day by Jewish reckoning is a whole day. But Jesus said, aren't there 12 hours in a day and 12 hours in a night? Okay, so he understands the 24-hour day cycle. And when he says three days and three nights, I think he actually meant three days and three nights. The only point I'm making here is it doesn't have to be Friday, the very thing you just said. It can be any day of the week because the day after the day of Passover is always a high day, a Sabbath, always, regardless of what day of the week it is. And John takes the time to tell us, when he's recounting this very same thing, John takes the time to say, the next day was a high day. And he's telling us that so that we'll understand that it's not the weekly Sabbath that's being discussed here. Now, during that week of unleavened bread, there is always a first day of the week. Regardless if we're talking Thursday to Thursday, Wednesday to Wednesday, Tuesday to Tuesday, Saturday to Saturday, there's always a Sunday in there somewhere. And according to the way the feasts are laid out in the Old Testament, during that week long Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Sunday, the first day of the week, during that week, whenever, however many days are in between, whenever that Sunday falls, that's the Feast of Firstfruits. Always. And so, what a surprise that we read that Christ had the Passover on the evening of the 13th with his disciples, that he was on the cross during the Passover the very next day on the cross by 9 o'clock, dead by 3 o'clock after the three hours of darkness, Now, Joseph of Arimathea gets up his courage and has to go to Pilate and say, can I have the body? I've got to hurry and get it into a grave, which is why he takes it to a nearby tomb that no one's ever been laid in that he happens to own. He gets it down from the cross and into the tomb before sundown, because at sundown, it's the beginning of a high day and you can't do any servile work. And Pilate is surprised to hear that Jesus is already dead. So Jesus is actually in the grave, get this, at the beginning of unleavened bread. And then in this case, three days, three nights later, is the beginning of first fruits. He's up, which is why we just read in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul says he is the first fruits of the resurrection. Paul wasn't just making a theological comment, he was saying he raised on first fruits. Which he logically did. 50 days after first fruits is Pentecost. 50 days after first fruits, the Feast of Weeks came, the Pentecost came, the Spirit fell, and those first four feasts of the Old Testament are all satisfied and fulfilled, regardless of what day of the week Jesus died. The tradition that he died on a Friday isn't biblically provable. Nor does it say it anywhere. We just assume it based on the fact that we know he was buried because the Sabbath was coming. Got it? Mm -hmm. So now see if you can read this through those eyes. And when it was evening, when evening had already come, see it was getting dark. And so the Sabbath is coming. The high day is coming. Because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, it was Passover day, which is also the day that they had to get all the leaven out of their camp to be prepared for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's why it was a preparation day. Because it was a preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, the day before the high day. By the way, that whole phrase, the day before the Sabbath, there's a single Greek word, prosabbaton. It just means just before the Sabbath. Joseph of Arimathea therefore came, he was a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up his courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and that's his motivation, that the Sabbath is coming and it's already evening. Verse 44, and Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph brought a linen cloth, took Jesus' body down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn into a rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb... Oftentimes when tombs like this, unused tombs, especially ones that were specifically hewn into the side of a rock, that's like a custom-made tomb, only pretty rich people have such things. Usually people in the Middle East were buried in mass graves, but he had a private tomb that had been cut out and hewn for him, and they would usually have a large, round, or sometimes disc-like rock or boulder, that they would put slightly uphill from it so that it could be rolled down to cover the the entrance to the tomb. And once it had been rolled down, it was almost impossible to get up out of the way again. So Joseph puts Jesus' body in his own tomb because it's close by. It's right close by, and he's running out of time, and it's evening already, And so, because it's all happening quickly, he goes to Pilate, he gets the body, he doesn't have time to anoint it or anything, he wraps it in linen, he puts it in there, he rolls the stone, there I've done my work, I got everything done before the Sabbath. But, look at verse 47, and Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph were looking on to see where he was laid. It's really important. Don't pass by it. Because one of the historic arguments against the empty tomb, remember earlier I was saying the empty tomb itself is just so powerful in convincing people that the resurrection must have occurred? Well, one of the excuses for the empty tomb that has been made through history is that the whole preachment of Jesus being raised was started by a band of women, and they went to the wrong tomb. Sure enough, they found it empty. Those poor women, up too early, it's still kind of dark out, they're a little confused, they've gone to the wrong tomb, and all of Christianity is a result of that mistake. You can find books written on that. Pardon me? and that's why women always want directions is that where you went I am so glad that I didn't say that (laughs) now of course that theory is blown apart by verse 47 because Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph were looking on to see where he was laid they knew where the tomb was And of course, the simplest answer to the women went to the wrong tomb, that argument, the simplest reply to it is, well, then go to the right one. Everybody knows where it is. It's a private tomb. It has a garden around it. It's owned by Joseph of Arimathea. Do you think when he heard the preaching that Jesus was resurrected that he didn't go check? That he didn't go and look to see if that was true. So the wrong tomb theory just doesn't fly. Now let me quickly give you the three primary arguments for the wrong tomb. It all kind of boils down to this. Somebody had to have taken the body if Jesus didn't actually resurrect. If he didn't get up himself, then somebody got him up. Somebody took the body. And there's only three choices for who took the body. One choice is the Romans took the body. Because the Romans were upset about all this preaching of Jesus as a God. They wanted to prove that Caesar was God. The Romans wanted to squash Christianity. We know that historically. So they are one of the candidates for taking the body. But the reason that's historically untenable... Is because if they had the body, they'd have broken it out sometime. They'd have said, okay, all you Christians that are causing so much trouble in Rome, all you Christians, this religion that we're trying to squash so that Caesar worship continues, you keep preaching that Jesus is raised from the dead, but no, he's not. Here he is. We've got the body. We took the body. Okay. That's never happened in history. There's never a claim anywhere in human history that the Romans ever brought the body out. Or ever even claim to have the body. That's something that just doesn't exist historically. The second possibility is that the Jews came and took the body. Except if you read the story, it's the Jews who are most interested, especially the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees, whose jobs are actually on the line, they're the most interested in squashing this whole Jesus belief. This whole Jesus cult is upsetting their livelihood. So they have a vested interest in stopping the flow of Christianity. All they have to do to kill Christianity is bring out the body. All they got to do is show up with the body. Oh, you silly Christians, you think he raised from the dead? We have him. He's right here. Here, bring him out, Saul. Saul, I just went with some Jewish name, I don't know. Bring him out, Moshe. And so they bring him out, they show him off, and, and, and it's over. Christianity's over. So then there's only a third possibility, which is the apostle stole the body. Now, if the apostle stole the body and then went on to preach he's resurrected, they're liars. Because they're preaching a falsehood. They're preaching something that they themselves know isn't true. You have to examine the details at that point and determine whether or not they come across like liars or do they come across like honest men. Now, there have been books galore written through the years by people who have examined the evidence, and they all end up at this essential point. They all end up at either the disciples lied or they told the truth. And then you have to examine the evidence, evidence like every one of those apostles who preached it died in horrible ways. And all they had to do was say, never mind, we made it up, and they wouldn't die. Now, I can believe that maybe a couple of them were so zealous for their lie that they were willing to die for their lie, but 11 of them that would all say, absolutely, this is true, we saw him, we walked and talked with him, we saw him resurrected, we know it, and they were willing to die for it. Now, I can, by the way... I can understand that people will die for a lie, but not a lie they know is a lie. People will die for a lie. People will die for Mormonism and have. But Mormonism is a lie, but they believed it. They believed it to the point in believing that lie, that they died for the lie. But men who are lying who know it's a lie... What is the likelihood they're all going to lay down their life for what they've said? Yes, Alex?
4: They've already shown how frightened they were when Jesus got arrested. So it goes against normal
2: Yeah, that they all ran, that they all tried to save their own skin. Now we know what their personalities are. And yet, and this is actually something we're going to get to in a moment, yet something cataclysmic happened to them where they went from being cowards to standing up on the day of Pentecost and saying, you with wicked hands killed the Prince of Life. Something happened. Something occurred between I don't know him and you killed the Prince of Life. Something happened there. Well, While I'm talking about them dying for their lie, let me show you how even more untenable that idea is. I can believe that if Tom and Micah and I all get together and form a lie together, as long as we stick together and as long as we're encouraging one another, then we're very likely to keep the lie going. We're really likely to keep it going because nobody wants to be the first one to break the lie. Honor among thieves. Nobody wants to be the first one to give it up. But these disciples were separated by great distances. Thomas is off in India. People are off in various different areas among the Gentiles preaching this. And they all died in ways like being driven through by by a Brahmin sword or having their skin peeled off or boiled in oil or being crucified upside down. I mean, these, these men are dying horrible deaths And they're hundreds of miles away from the others. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to know if you break rank. Nobody's going to know if you save your skin in one town. Say you're there in Chennai, which according to best tradition is where Thomas went and where he was sacrificed. If he's there and he saves his own skin, if he says, never mind, we made it up so they don't kill him. He just goes to the next city in India and starts the lie again. And he's fine. But he was willing to die by himself, separated from the other liars, for a lie he knew was a lie. I don't get that. How do you you get that? Thomas, that's who I'm talking about. I'm talking about doubting Thomas. I'm talking about, I won't believe unless I can touch him. I'm talking about Thomas, who doesn't believe it when Jesus says he's going to go, and he's going to be sacrificed, he's going to be handed over, he's going to die, and Thomas, where are you going? What are you doing? It's always doubting Thomas, (laughs) who, by the way, to this day, we still refer to as doubting Thomas, and I assume he's up in heaven right now going, can we get over that? (laughs) Can we maybe move past that? Uh, doubting Thomas went from I won't believe to being willing to be sacrificed by himself in India for something he knew was a lie that's untenable it's unbelievable he went through some cataclysmic change you can go right down the line Peter's change Thomas's change John son of thunder John, who with his brother is saying things to Jesus like, do you want us to call lightning down on them? Yeah, let's burn them up. And Jesus said, you don't know what kind of men you are. Jesus nicknames them son of thunder. Something happened so cataclysmic that to this day we refer to him as the apostle of love. You go back and read his epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He says more about love for the brethren than the others do. He went from fry them to love them. What happened? Something cataclysmic happened to him. Some change happened to him. Now, I can believe that human beings will change, but they don't change for the better because of a lie. I can believe they get worse because they're liars and they know it. But every single one of them went from not believing, guarding themselves, Protecting their own skin, running away out of fear. Every one of them turned to, I'm willing to die because Jesus got up again. And I think, by the way, that's the cataclysmic event that changed them all. That they saw the risen Lord. And once they saw it, there's no going back. I've been there, I've seen it. Yes, Joni.
1: nails why else would you be buried with that unless you hope for a
2: resurrection yeah absolutely and and that belief that faith that spread throughout the middle east and up into europe and down into africa that faith was based on christ got up again and people who never saw him physically were willing to lay down their lives in order to not deny the crucifixion of Christ. Why? How did that happen to them? Well, remember I started today by saying one of the great evidences of the crucifixion is what it's done to us and what it did to them. It moved them from disfaith to I'm willing to die for Jesus. And how does that happen? Well, the Bible says that's the resurrection power of God The power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power by which God raised your heart, raised your belief, raised your faith. Put that resurrection power inside you so that you would understand the things of God and the things of Christ. And that's why we're now willing to stand up publicly and say whatever it takes, whatever the problem, the beating, whatever the headaches of this faith that we have, we we have to stand here. I'm convinced of it. Why are we so convinced? Because the power of God that resurrected him from the dead has taken out your stony heart and given you the new birth and has renewed your mind and has brought you to faith in Christ. So so the evidence is actually quite overwhelming for the resurrection of Christ. And no argument that's been made against the empty tomb through the years has managed to stand because it always in the end comes down to the apostles preached he's raised if he's not raised they're liars are they liars or are they telling the truth look at the evidence they come out like truth tellers they don't come out like liars because we've got plenty of history with liars Anybody here know a liar? Oh, yeah. yeah. Anybody here lying when they said that? <laughs> yeah, I was told years and years ago, I mean like high school level, I was told to be a really good liar, you got to have a really good memory. And nobody's got that good a memory. Your lies will be found out. Somebody will figure out that you're a liar and you can't be trusted. And you're going to tell me that these 12 tax collectors and fishermen were just so smart they could construct a lie that turned the world upside down for the last 2,000 years that not one of them ever broke rank? You know what's interesting about Christian history? There's a lot of things that are interesting about Christian history. But one of the things that I find most fascinating is that you don't find anywhere where anybody ever says that one of the disciples ever said, never mind, we made it up. Nobody even tries that lie. There's no history books that contain somebody saying, well, I was with Thomas the night before he died, and he confessed to me that he actually made it up. There's no historic account of the apostles ever doing anything but dying with Jesus on their lips. So those don't look like dishonest men. Those look like people who are utterly convinced of something they can't escape, and only something as powerful as the resurrection can make that kind of change in people like fishermen and tax collectors. You get it? Only that kind of resurrection power can make a change in somebody as depraved as Jeff. See, I just brought it into the modern context. And Christians should not have nodded that hard when I said that. Only the resurrection power of God can make a change in somebody as depraved as us the same way it did to them, the apostles. It's doing it still to this very day to people like us, and that is proof of the ongoing evidence of the resurrection. Did you have a hand up, Sandy?
3: Yeah, um, I just want to say one more strong evidence is, as we know that Christ miracle validated who he said he was. Well, after his resurrection... The apostles had those same performing miracles. So
2: that's
3: not the strong evidence
2: of it. Yeah. If he had not raised and God had not accepted that sacrifice, do you think God would have continued doing the miraculous through those apostles? There's plenty of evidence in the affirmative and no good evidence in the negative. I'm doing a courtroom speak for George's benefit <laughs> right there. And that takes us to chapter 16. And, when the Sabbath was over, when is that? When is the Sabbath over? Six o'clock in the evening. Right? So when the 15th is over, the 16th begins that night. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they could come and anoint him why did they do it that day well they couldn't do it the previous day and they can't anoint Jesus till he's dead three days three nights that was the tradition that's why Jesus waited three days three nights before he went to see Lazarus so that they would understand that he was actually totally completely dead So Jesus was in the grave three days and three nights. After he'd been in the grave through the Sabbath, that's one day and night over, then Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, go out to buy spices. By the way, the Friday night through the Sabbath to Sunday morning scenario doesn't have any room for the women to have done that. They didn't know they were going to need the spices and didn't go out and buy them on Friday night. Saturday is the Sabbath they can't go out and buy it they can't buy sell trade do anything that day and by the time they go do that he's already up so again we have to read what the Bible says and not let our traditions overwhelm our thinking about the Bible and very early on the first day of the week what's the first day of the week during that week of unleavened bread first fruits Now we know that he raised on a Sunday. Okay, that's told us. He's raised on the first day of the week. We know that. What we don't know is what day of the week he died. The Bible doesn't tell us. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. Now, by the way, I just said the Bible doesn't tell us what day of the week he died. I think it's pretty easy. You've just got a date stamp here. First day of the week he's up. Go back 72 hours. It's that easy. And then you're going to know when he died. Verse 3 says, And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Remember I said it was very, very difficult to roll that stone away because it was rolled downhill and into place. Who's going to roll it away for us? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. People (laughs) debate this a little bit. I'm going to tell you what I think. I don't think the stone was rolled away to let Jesus out. I think the stone was rolled away to let us in, so that we could see that the tomb was empty. If the stone was still there, people would assume the body was still in there. But it was rolled away so that people could see that it was empty. But Jesus goes through a locked door later on during the prayer meeting with Peter. He just shows up in the room a couple of times. So locked doors don't mean anything to him. I I don't think a stone matters to him. I think he can go wherever he wants to go at that point. Yes. The rolling
3: away of
1: the stone is similar to the curtain
2: being torn. Very similar to the curtain being torn. Not to let God out, but to let us in so that we can see what's happening here. Looking up, they noticed that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. Have you noticed well, and I do want to put some emphasis on this. Have you noticed how frequently Mark has said people were amazed? We're going to look at that in more depth next week. But Mark uses this word continually. He keeps saying Jesus did things and they were amazed. And that happened and everybody was amazed. He said to them, verse six, he, the man sitting there who was assumed to be an angel, said, Do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter. That's an interesting little addition. Again, one of the many, many reasons that we believe that Peter is the one who was tutoring Mark that Mark is actually writing Peter's gospel. It's interesting that Peter would add himself at that point. Go tell the disciples and Peter specifically. Why? Because God has already said to Peter, when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. He's already given Peter instruction about what to do when he's raised. Now Jesus is saying, okay, I'm raised. Go tell Peter. I'm here. Not surprising that Peter, 50 days later, would stand up at Pentecost and be the one who preached that message, at risk of his life. So go tell the disciples and tell Peter, he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he said to you. Notice that even the angel is testifying to them that Jesus has gone to Galilee because that's his word that's the very word of God once he has spoken it it has to be once he has said it it has to happen you're not going to see him here in the tomb he's up and out he's already on his way to Galilee he's going to see you in Galilee he's going to appear to you in Galilee that's when he's going to appear to to Peter and restore him three times that's all got to happen and so because Jesus said it and because Peter was left in this condition of denying Jesus well then Peter has to go to Galilee because he's got to run into Jesus by the sea of Galilee so that Jesus can ask him three times do you love me more than you love these and so Peter has to be restored because God has already determined that on the day of Pentecost Peter has to stand up and preach Christ so it's no mistake that you go tell the disciples and tell Peter and they the women verse 8 And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. It's the root word from which we get phobias and from which we get fear. I mean, they were just overwhelmed by what they had just seen. They came to the tomb in order to anoint a dead body. They had already bought the spices. They did not come there expecting to find an empty tomb. They came there expecting to find a dead body. And yet, he's gone, he's up, he's in Galilee, just like he said, and an angel is there telling them, look, that's what he said, and that's what he's done. Tell Peter, go to Galilee, because that's where he's going to meet you. I mean, it's all completely the activity of an absolute sovereign. So they went out. They fled from the tomb, I guess. I, I guess they fled at that point. They were trembling, and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And that, my friends, look closely at your Bible. That is the end of the book of Mark. Hmm. Now, in any of your translations, you have more stuff after that. That's what we're going to talk about next week. Because the book of Mark has a couple of different endings. So what does that mean to us? Does that mean that the Bible's not reliable? Does that mean that we've run into a large textual variant? And where did it come from? And is that actually the end of the book of Mark? Or did Mark intend to write something more? Or did he just end on that note? Well, that's all the stuff we're going to talk about next week when we talk about the longer ending of Mark. That ought to be enough to bring you back. All right? It's just ironic. For the last 20 years, actually a little bit more, that's how long it's taken me to preach every single verse of the New Testament. I've been interrupted by a bunch of Old Testament books as well, but we have now successfully preached every single verse in the New Testament. It is ironic And I I like God's sense of humor. It is ironic that the last time we preach out of the book of Mark, which will be next week, we're going to talk about a textual variant. That's just ironic to me. We're going to talk about where the end of the book of Mark came from. And then we're done with the New Testament, which means we're going to start over.
1: Yes.
2: (laughs) I'm going to go back to the oldest preaching I've done, which is the book of Romans. And we're going to start again. So that's what you've got to look forward to. Questions? Even though there have been questions right along the way, is there anything else? Yes, sir?
4: Comment. So you emphasize verse 47 that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, looked at the tomb. Well, they had a reason for doing that because they knew they were coming back to dress that body which is what they do at the beginning of chapter 16. So how would they? How could anybody possibly think they lost their way? Yeah, three days had gone by, but they knew where they were headed because they had a task to perform. And the other thing that strikes me about all of this that occurs after the death of Christ is anyone who touches a dead body is ceremonially unclean. And they're doing this at this... High Sabbath time, and they didn't care.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it had been they're three days. The body had to be anointed. So
4: going to go to the tomb and dress this body because they loved him so much. Yeah. Um, Joseph Arimathea. I'm sure he had help, but they took the body down from the cross, yeah. put it in a tomb. They're unclean, and I was just reading a little comment that said. That stone usually took 20 men to put in place. So no wonder the women are saying, how are we going to get the stone out of the way? 20 men.
2: That's a good question. Who's going to roll the stone away? Hmm. Anything else? Good comments. Anything else?
1: (coughs) Yes, ma'am. Thank you for... All of the sleepless nights and all of the study hours and all of the days you spent toiling and working and educating yourself to bring us the entire New Testament.
2: Oh, well, it's my job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, you're certainly more than welcome. I, I don't mean to be grandiose about this, so I hope it doesn't come across this way. But in the end, this is honest. In the end, I don't do it for you. In the end, I do it to serve him. And in serving him, then I do it for you. But this is all about, I'm on marching orders from my master. And that's why. Well, you're welcome. Anything else? All right. Say goodbye to the internet congregation.
3: Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at
0: salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study with Sovereign Grace.